This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Over the past few years, many parts of the country have experienced record drought, followed by epic floods. You could call it water whiplash. So this has always been normal, but with climate change, what's going to happen is those juxtapositions of floods and droughts are going to get even worse. We're going to see them even more, and the conditions at both extremes are going to be worse. California has seen five years of drought, followed by a deluge of rain this past winter. With all that uncertainty, how do we stabilize our water supply? Whether it's the drought or now these rains, we get reminded all the time of the need to prepare, 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 and the need to deal with our infrastructure, not just new infrastructure, but our old infrastructure. may not be that sexy, but it's incredibly important. The Perils of Water Whiplash, up next on Climate One. Extreme droughts and floods are happening more and more frequently, wreaking havoc on our water supply. How do we deal with this water whiplash? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. Today on the program, we discuss the challenges of having too little water and of having too much. Greg is joined by Buzz Thompson, former director of the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford and a professor of natural resources at Stanford Law School. Felicia Marcus is chair of the California Water Resources Board. She served at the EPA under President Clinton. Don Cameron is manager of Terranova Ranch in California's Central Valley, where he farms a variety of fruits, vegetables, and nuts. Here's our conversation about living with water whiplash. Wes Thompson, let's begin with you. Uh, there's always droughts and floods, and uh, put us in uh, historical perspective, this recent uh, historic drought in California and then this massive rain that we had this last year. How unusual is that historically? Yeah, so that's a great question. And the largest flood that we have probably experienced since statehood was during the winter of 1861 to 1862 when it rained so much and the temperatures increased in order to also melt the snow that we ended up with a flood in the Central Valley of California that was 300 miles long, 20 miles wide, and it not only flooded the Central Valley of California, but also other portions of Northern California, the Mojave Desert, the Los Angeles region. And yet, even though we had a flood in December and January of that year, by June, we were beginning what's known as the Great Civil War Drought, which lasted for five years and was one of the worst droughts and perhaps was even worse than the drought that we've recently experienced. So this has always been normal, but with climate change, what's going to happen is those juxtapositions of floods and droughts are going to get even worse. We're going to see them even more, and the conditions at both extremes are going to be worse. So some people say the, the wets get wetter and the dries get drier, right? Is that right? So there, there's always been floods and droughts, but there's going to be bigger floods, bigger droughts. That's that, true. And it's going to be true not only in California, but it will be true throughout the United States. Felicia Marcus, uh, do we know that this is climate change? Because some people might just say well, the weather is always changing. Uh. Well, a number of people. I mean, the question is, what do we know? I mean, uh, researchers at Stanford have talked about the fact that with climate change and increased heat, Droughts do get worse, and they act longer. The dryness and the heat has two impacts. One is it can make the drought worse, as 
things dry up, and as they dry up and you finally get some rain, it sinks into the ground rather than running off. We had to come up through the drought. We had to come up with new measures of runoff measures where because the straight precipitation wasn't telling a story about what was going to end up in a reservoir. The other impact that it has, and this is the one that scares us to death and is the you know Godzilla of all wake-up calls, is that in California, most of the people and most of the agriculture agricultural production is not where the water falls, and it's not used in the time of year when it falls. So storing it, not just in the wet part of the year for the, the drier part of the year, but in wet years for dry years, requires storage. And our snowpack is a third of our storage in an average year, and the projections are that we're going to lose it. And we're going to lose it faster with just a few degrees uh, of increased temperature. So that's really the biggest impact that we're already starting to see. If you look at this year, even in the northern Sierra, we have 200, 209% of uh, average precipitation. That sounds fabulous. We we don't have anywhere near record snowpack. We still have a ton of snowpack, and we're grateful for every flake. But um, it's if you look at those two curves between precipitation this year and the snowpack we have, they don't match. And is that because the precipitation came as rain and not snow because exactly. of warmer temperatures? Is that exactly. right? Exactly. And that's going to happen more in the past, which means more flooding in the spring, the winter and the spring, and less snowpack to tide us over and refill our reservoirs and replenish our streams and our groundwater basins throughout the spring and the summer. Don Cameron, you're growing fruits and nuts and vegetables in the Central Valley. How is this uh, affecting you? How is the, you know, not enough water and then too much water, how has that affected your business, growing food? You know, when we look back at uh, the way we used to farm, we used to use flood irrigation, furrow irrigation. We used to use a lot of water. We uh, we grew primarily three crops at that point, and uh, that was cotton, alfalfa, and grain. Um, Since then, we've moved forward, and now we farm about 25 different crops, but in around 2008, 2009, we switched our method of irrigation to subsurface drip for primarily all our crops. And uh, we've been able to cut back on our water use. We've been able to uh, use less water and produce more, more crop. Uh, but what, uh, you know, as we're looking forward, we're seeing that our springs are becoming warmer. We're not getting the frost. We're planting earlier. And we're going into the shoulder seasons in the fall, too. Uh, we're, we're growing peppers all the way into November, uh, harvesting late November. Uh, so we're, we're trying to take advantage of those situations uh, to help us find better markets and, uh, and be a little more diverse. And you made that change from flooding the fields to irrigate your crops after a trip to an unusual place. Tell us the unusual place in the world where you learned you got that technology. Um, actually, it was on a, a trip to Xinjiang uh, province in China. Far western China, very western arid China, area. Mm-hmm. As, about as far as you can get from, a, from an ocean. And saw how they were irrigating with the drip irrigation tape there. It was on top of their, their tomato plants. It was all gravity-fed, wasn't filtered. We came home and uh, turned around, pressurized it, put a uh, filter on it, and went subsurface so we didn't have any mold issues with the tomatoes. And uh, we reduced water consumption over 30%, and actually our yield jumped from uh, up 42 tons up to around 60 tons an acre. 
a lot of farmers say, we, I'd like to do that. It's expensive to do it if the state or someone will give me some money to do it. Was that economic for you to invest in that technology? And why don't, why don't more farmers do that sort of thing? Well, the, the tomato, the canning tomato industry has switched, and they're all over 95% uh, subsurface drip now. Uh, the growers, growers watch what other growers do, and they found out the, uh, that it really was economical to make the change. We're talking about water at Climate One. I want to go to, um, we're talking about too much water and, and not enough water. We wanted to hear what it's like on the front lines of a water crisis, the problem of having too much water. We spoke by phone with Terry Tata, who lives in the town of Oroville, California, and one, was one of almost 200,000 people evacuated last winter after an emergency spillway from the Oroville Dam was threatening to collapse. The dam, the highest in the country, was built in 1968, and like much of the country's water, infrastructure was overdue for maintenance and repairs. Let's listen. My name is Terry Tata. I live in the middle of Oroville. I received a notice on my phone saying that we had 60 minutes to evacuate. It was very scary. According to my doctor, I had a heart attack myself. We didn't know the risk because we didn't know it was a risk. And this year, that is an exceptionally wet year, after so many years of being very dry, you know, anything could have happened, and it did happen. Businesses have been lost. The majority of the people that live here are below the property level. So these people do not have the means to go anywhere. Whatever they create now or they fix that spillway has to be good enough for another 50 years at least. This is an earthquake prone area. And if anything like that happens in this area, the water is going to flow freely down south, and we are going to be taken with it. That was Terry Tata, who had to evacuate her home for several days this past February for fear that a massive flood would destroy her entire town of Oroville, California. Felicia Marcus, she said she got 60 minutes to evacuate. Her doctor told her she had a heart attack. Poor people living in a vulnerable area, earthquake zone. Estimates are $50 billion to fix California's water system, which provides a lot of uh, the food that uh, ends up on tables across the country. What's going to be done to fix Oroville and all the other creaking dams in this state? Well, I, I, can't, I can't speak to what the Department of Water Resources will do with their dam. I know they're all on high alert, and they, it was all hands on deck for Oroville, where the spillway went, which was not something that they expected. I, I think they came together with the local emergency officials at the local level and made calls uh, that were uh, calls they felt they needed to make. But I think uh, whether it's the drought or now these rains, we get reminded all the time of the need to prepare, 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 and the need to deal with our infrastructure, not just new infrastructure, but our old infrastructure, and the new kinds of infrastructure that we can take advantage of. I think people are talking about uh, replacing and restoring our existing infrastructure. may not be that sexy, but it's incredibly important. And people are out there thinking about new kinds of infrastructure to deal with flood control and water storage, uh, including groundwater storage and including uh, smaller storage. We need it big, small of all kinds, and all of it needs to be maintained, levees, floodplains, et cetera. During that, uh, that was national news when the Oroville Dam was, was kind of crumbling before our eyes. 
guys. Uh, and there was some uh, question whether the, the Trump administration would declare a disaster. People apparently were on Twitter trying to get the president's attention. Uh, is, what is the federal government going to do? do? Does California need the federal government, the Trump administration, to help fix? Because there's a lot of federal money in the California water. No, my understanding, and I don't know the details about it. Sorry to say it's not my department, so I don't know all of the details about it. But my understanding is that federal government's been helpful. Generally in disasters, and unfortunately, having run a public works department at the local level years ago and gone through more disasters than anyone should ever have to go through, I found that in in a time of disaster, everybody steps up. They really do, and put aside uh, some of their uh, rivalries, politics, you name it. The real trick is, in your earlier question, is how do we invest in the future in an ongoing way? How do you maintain what's been there without having to wait for a crisis for the attention to happen. And that's something that I think I've seen renewed determination on people's parts to do. Um, But uh, I think it's on all of us to try and maintain that vigilance. And, you know, we're going to have to go back to the people of California and and tell them what it's going to take to invest in the kind of infrastructure we need to maintain our economic and social vitality, let alone public safety, uh, for the next 50 years. Buzz Thompson, it's often people of lower income levels who live in floodplains, um, maybe don't have flood insurance. Uh, floods and droughts are some of the biggest natural disasters in terms of dollars of damage around the world. What do you see as the risk uh, going forward if, if, as you say, there's going to be more extreme droughts, more extreme floods? Who are the populations at risk and, and how can they be protected from, um, from what may be coming their way? Yeah. So you're absolutely right that as we see more extremes, all of our infrastructure is going to be under increased uh, pressure. Uh, so, for example, with our dams, they are going to see conditions that we have never experienced before. And if you look at all of the infrastructure relevant, for example, to dams, the major people who need protecting are generally going to be the poor. Uh, So right downstream from dams, most of the neighborhoods tend to be poor neighborhoods. Most of the people who live in the floodplains of California tend to be poor. And we do not, I think, at this point, have a particularly good system uh, for protecting them. Uh, For example, we have uh, uh, flood insurance, but Flood insurance is sometimes out of the reach of some of the poorest members of our population. So about the only thing at the moment we can do is actually invest in that infrastructure in order to try to protect those populations. So we do need to invest in restoring our dams. We need to invest in ensuring that our levees are up to the task. And that's going to take a lot much a lot more money than we've historically spent in this particular area. Don Cameron, you did something unusual. Your neighbors kind of thought you thought you were a little crazy. You <laughs> flooded your field, and can flooding farms and you know can that be a way to kind of uh, direct water uh, during floods and, and break a levee and kind of plan to flood fields when when necessary? Right. We we knew long term that we were our groundwater levels were declining, and in 2011, uh, we 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 actually took flood water and conveyed it onto our growing crops. We had uh, water one to two feet deep in our vineyards, and we kept it on for four, four and a half months. Uh, this year, we're doing the same thing. We're, we're intentionally flooding wine grapes, almonds, pistachios, alfalfa hay. Uh, we have one, one vineyard that we've already put over 10 feet of water uh, going to the groundwater. So. We're looking at diverting flood water and trying to improve our, our groundwater. 
how does the wine taste after you flood the vineyard with two feet of wine? <laughs> well, I two feet of water. You know, the, the, this, where we farm isn't Napa Valley, so it's not the $150 bottles of wine that we're producing. But uh, by the time we get into the summer, the, the vines actually use the water up uh, during that period, and, and we have to go back to drip irrigation to, uh, to get to harvest. But you're doing this, you know, often groundwater is talked about as, as a bank account, right? That you, you draw from it in, in dry years, you put it back in wet years. So you're putting water back in your own bank account. Are you worried that your neighbor next door is going to have a straw and suck water out of your account? No, I think we're, we're looking long term that the region needs to build the groundwater back up. Um, in California, we have regulations that will be addressing that uh, in the near future. But we started way before the regulations uh, came into place. We felt it was the right thing to do, and, and we feel that long-term this is going to be good for our community and for all of our neighbors. We want to bring them into the program. We have a project that's going to hopefully get up to 16,000 acres and, and actually put in 30,000 acre-feet a month into the groundwater. Buzz Thompson, there's been a lot of talk about extreme uh, extraction of groundwater in Central California, uh, Central Valley. Uh, this, the land is actually subsiding, sinking in some areas, uh, and that's been an area of, of concern. So can this perhaps redress some of the, the sinking ground in the farmland of California? It certainly can, and it would be great to see even more of this type of practice uh, taking place. And one of the things that we need to do is to make sure there's an incentive in place, and in particular to make sure that if somebody is willing to use their land to store water, uh, that that is then their water uh, so that they uh, they can take advantage of that. One of the problems that we've had, though, is that as you actually extract groundwater, in some of the groundwater aquifers, you get a compaction of the aquifer itself so that you have less storage capacity in the future. So it would be great to see people at this point in time making the step of actually trying to replenish the aquifer so that we don't lose that capacity in the future. And how much of this is contained to California? How much of this is relevant to other parts of, of the United States, the Great Plains? Uh, climate change is going to affect the delivery of water in lots of places, Buzz Thompson. Is this unique to California, or is this something that could be considered in the Ogallala or other areas? So the first thing to recognize is that the overdrafting of our groundwater aquifers, where we extract more water than is naturally being replenished, is not a problem that's limited to California. This is a problem that you see throughout the western United States, and in fact, you see it globally. The solution of actually going in and taking surface water when it's available and storing it in that groundwater aquifer is one that is available any place that you have surface water available. In California, thankfully, because we've plumbed our state really well and we can move the water around fairly easily, it gives us a great opportunity to engage in groundwater storage and recovery. Other portions of the United States, however, including some areas over the Ogallala Aquifer, there's less surface water available even during wet periods. So there, they're actually much more out of luck than California. Felicia Marcus, the Colorado River uh, is key to what 40 million people or so in the western United States. Uh, We've had a very wet year in California. How about the Colorado River? How how is its health? Well, the Colorado has been, it's been a nail-biter. Um, for the past decade. They've been in a long-term drought, but it is a long river through mountains that has uh, a lot of storage on it. 
but getting to the point of passing a line where shortages would be called among the states. California has the good fortune of having the most senior water rights holder on the Colorado, even though we're at the the bottom. And so we have a little bit of insulation, but in the in the 90s, the other basin states sort of called our bluff because we're actually using more than our allotment. There was a huge negotiation to cut back to the 4.4 million acre feet uh, that we were entitled to. Since then, this incredible collection of people along seven states who had been fighting and suing each other for years, and Buzz knows an awful lot about that whole story, more, more than I do, have created a system of uh, shortage rules, and they've come together recognizing that they actually need to work together. So there are things folks are doing to manage it, but the situation on the on the Colorado is uh, one that all of those states, including California, has to keep their eye on because with climate change again, w- there's going to be left, less left in storage, less snowpack, and the like. I mean, the snows that came in this year bailed out going below the red line, but they certainly haven't bailed it out. Lake Mead and uh, those reservoirs are still in trouble, and they're silting up. So there's a, a whole host of issues we have to deal with. Fortunately, as folks have said, there are a lot of solutions that we haven't yet be- even begun to tap at the level we can tap them. So there's an awful lot that we can do. People like Don is one of my heroes for not only being an early adopter, but being brave and, and doubling down and doing really creative work that his colleagues can see. Others are doing work in floodplain management to set back levees and figure out how to flood floodplains for flood control, but also to help fish and birds. And it's that integrated, uh, integrated kind of thinking with environmentalists, government agencies, and farmers figuring out how to solve problems versus talking past each other that we need more than ever. And I'm seeing it happen. We're talking about water stability here at Climate One. You can listen to all of our programs and subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. We're talking about the challenges of water whiplash with Buzz Thompson, Professor of Natural Resources at Stanford, Felicia Marcus of the California Water Resources Board, and Don Cameron of Terranova Ranch. Let's get back to our discussion. Here's Greg Dalton. Don Cameron, Felicia Marcus called you a hero. Tell us about the the crops. You used to grow uh, cotton in California. A lot of people criticize water-intensive crop in a dry state like California, also rice and alfalfa. So tell us about how the crop mix has changed recently for you on your farm. You know, we 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 changed for a lot of reasons. Part of it was economic. The uh, the we tended to switch to crops that were specifically grown in California. So we didn't have the commodity competition that we did, uh, and to do that, we had to be more precise in how we farmed and everything we did with the with the crops that we were growing. Um, so when we invested in subsurface drip irrigation we were able to really cut cut the water back and uh, actually freed up water. We used to have to idle fields during the summer when we grew some of the other crops. Uh, And now we're able to actually pump less and and farm all the land throughout the year. And you farm, uh, you you grow almonds. We did a, a, Climate One did a Facebook post once with almonds with little devil horns on them. (laughs) They got a lot of traction. People like to villainize almonds because they're, what, how many, a gallon of water per, per, per almond. Uh, so talk to us about the water intensity of almond and, you know, should they be grown in a dry state in a drought? 
You know, I, when we start talking about um, which crop we should grow, as a farmer, we look at the economic side of it. We know that any crop we grow is going to use water, um, whether, whether it's almonds, whether it's tomatoes, carrots, onions. I did a calculation over the weekend, and on our farm, which is, I just looked at about a little over 6,000 acres, we farm and produce enough calories if someone was going to eat nothing but vegetables and nuts for a year. But we, we would feed 92,000 people for a year, for a full year, with the calories we grow. So, you know, everything we do uses water, uh, whether it's, we're, you know, if we're growing almonds, if we're growing tomatoes, carrots, uh, wine grapes. Um, we have an emotional attachment to the food we eat, and I think that uh, to restrict one crop and not uh, and to tell somebody that they can't grow a certain crop uh, is not going to work. Yeah, government doesn't want to do that either. It's time for our lightning round at Climate One. We're going to uh, brief questions, one-word phrase or answers from our guests here talking about water, whiplash, drought, and floods in the West and in the, in the country. Uh, I'm going to mention a noun, and, and our guests are going to mention the first thing, that uh, word or phrase that comes to mind. Uh, unfiltered, tell us what you really think. Um, Felicia Marcus Cotton. Soft. <laughs> Don Cameron Monsanto. Uh, technology. Uh, Buzz Thompson. Alfalfa exported to Japan to feed cows. An idea that would not make any sense if you actually priced water properly and <laughs> you didn't have a lot of empty ships heading back to China and Japan that needed something on board. Sorry, that was more than two words. Yeah. Mark, Mark, call that a market failure. Uh, <laughs> Don Cameron, no non-till farming. Uh, great for parts of the country. Doesn't fit our operation. Felicia Marcus, U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke. Interesting. <laughs> Buzz Thompson, hamburger. Lots of water. 600 <laughs> gallons in each burger. True or false, uh, Don Cameron, hedge funds are investing in almond and other farms now and expect to make a killing when water becomes more scarce and valuable. Hmm. There's, there's some truth to that. Buzz Thompson, many more farmers should pay more for water than the pittance they pay now. Yes. Don Cameron, farmers would use water more wisely if they had to pay more for it. Definitely. <laughs> okay. Uh, going on our lightning round. Felicia Marcus, true or false? Skiing is a sport with a bright future. <laughs> Depends on where you are. <laughs> I interviewed the heads of some ski resorts, Jackson and Van, uh, Whistler and Aspen, and they said 30% of the ski resorts in the country will go out of business in the next few years, the next couple of decades. Uh, true or false, Buzz Thompson, you will drink recycled pee water one day. I already have. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. Uh, Don Cameron, true or false, people get upset when farmers make money. True. Felicia Marcus, the price of food will rise as water becomes more scarce due to severe weather driven by climate disruption. Probably. Okay, let's give a round of applause to our guests for getting through that lightning round. Felicia Marcus, what are some of the lessons from the drought? Well, six years in California, the West, uh, have, do people really change their habits? Are we going back to watering their lawns in the old ways, or is it... The, 
Oh, a tremendous number of lessons. I think folks, you know, if you think about the drought of the 90s, which is when I was in L.A., we, we learned how much water we were using indoors and that retrofitting our toilets and showers could save an incredible amount of water without us really doing that much. Real big focus. In this drought, people learned how much they were using outdoors. I think people didn't realize that on average in urban California, we use uh, half of our water, and that's an average, outdoors on ornamental landscaping. I think people tend to water their lawns either the three feet under their lawns, they water so much it runs in the street that causes storm drain pollution. They, they are watering lawns that came with the house that they never thought about to be green as if they were in Scotland in the middle of the worst drought in modern history, that sort of thing. I think folks learned that they didn't need to do that, and the public stepped up big time to change out their lawns for more drought-tolerant, even lawns, let alone other kinds of landscaping, and um, ate up rebates, snapped up rebates uh, as fast as agencies put them out. So tremendous um, uh, public education, uh, public response to the drought when we were all in this together, and incredible knowledge about what we can do outdoors. I think that was really very important. I also think people learned a lot about climate change during this drought because there was a lot of conversation about it. I think the polls were remarkable about folks recognizing that we needed, uh, that that we, we were vulnerable and that we needed to use water more intelligently across the straight, uh, the the state, a, a lot of impetus for that. And there were a lot of people who did reach across traditional, not everyone, but there were an awful lot of, I, I would say there were more drought angels than opportunists, and a lot of relationships formed where people realized that we have to use each drop more wisely, both for food and for fish and wildlife and all the, the different um, folks who can use water along a, a water course. I also think actually that after a year of uh, picking on almonds or picking on uh, a little soundbite or whatever your favorite thing was, by the next year, I saw a lot of good stories about people understanding how much water was in their food. You know, People consume more water in the food they eat than on their lawns. And it's not like farmers are growing food to have, put it in a bonfire and have a happy, proud of ourselves party. They do it so people can eat it. So I think we have a higher sophistication of the fact that Water grows our food. I, I, for example, am particularly fond of the water used to grow avocados. So don't take my avocados away from me. You know? so, but I think people have a recognition of that now that they didn't have before. Does everybody have it universally? No, but a, a tremendous growth in public um, awareness. And we have to hope that that drive continues as people figure out how to um, give the support that's going to be necessary to to do all the smart things, whether it's uh, long-term efficiency and conservation, recycling, got over the hump, uh, you know, with people, I've, I've drunk it too. I mean, astronauts have been drinking it for a long time. It is not rocket science to recycle water. It is just, you, it, you just have to have the will and the regulatory certainty that it's going to be safe. We've been working on all of that. You have f- stormwater capture plans, we have stormwater capture working in a lot of communities, but LA has huge plans to capture water rather than letting it go to sea and getting it into their groundwater basins, putting recycled water into groundwater basins. You have agencies working across traditional divides in my old whole town, LA, between the county and the city, which never used to talk to each other, between the water department, water supply department, and the water, you know, the wastewater department where I used to work. Um, and, and they sort of hated each other. Now everybody's coming together to figure out how do we manage that 
water and green LA, the most park poor city in the country. So that that's a space to watch over the next decade. Buzz Thompson, uh, the Hoover Institution at Stanford, conservative think tank in Stanford, did a poll that said that the drought concern actually cut across partisan lines, brought people together, and there was evidence of sharing and sacrifice. So your thoughts on how the drought and uh, brought people together, and now that the drought's over, does that evaporate? Yeah. So the drought definitely brought people together, and I think as actually Felicia intimated earlier, droughts and any type of emergency bring communities together and everyone's willing to share. And I think water is particularly unique in this particular area. I think everyone recognizes that water is a community resource and that everybody has a responsibility during a period of drought to contribute towards reducing their water use. Having said that, although I'm pretty much in the same optimist category as Felicia, the experience worldwide has been that when a drought ends, people forget about water. If you talk to people in, uh, in Australia, they'll tell you that at the end of the millennium drought, within a year, people were no longer talking about water resources. They were no longer talking about how they would prepare for the next drought. I think there are a lot of practices that end up being ingrained. Uh, in my particular case, what we did was we tore out most of our lawn. We put in an intelligent uh, uh, irrigation controller that now actually turns off the, uh, uh, the water when it rains, also gets all the weather information and uses that to adjust how much water we're using on our gardens. So we've made that change, but we could go so much farther than we already have in making sure that future droughts are better. And we have a terrible tendency in California to basically make sort of a leap forward every time we have a drought. And then when that drought ends, we sort of just stay on that new plateau, and it takes another drought to move us that next step. So one of the things we have to figure out is how we get people to pay attention to a drought when it's a period of floods and how when then we go back in the drought, people still worry about the yeah, floods absolutely. and say, hey, we have to be prepared to make sure that levee doesn't fail the next time that we have a flood. So we have to get people to think about water comprehensively. Don Cameron, climate is a dirty word in certain circles, a lot of the country. Do you talk about climate with other farmers or is that something you kind of dance around? You know, um, I also went to Australia, and they're, they're, uh, they called it climate variability. <laughs> I think that a lot of growers don't like to use the word climate change. Um, like I say, myself, I recognize that we're seeing change in climate, and we're changing the way we farm to deal with it. We're, we're, we're going to take advantage of it, and we're going to recognize it, and we're going to put it to the best use we can. But... You're right. A lot of I think a lot of growers have a real hard time um, admitting climate change. Why should people who live in the other parts of the country? Why should they care about drought, floods in, in California? How does it connect to their food? Avocados. <laughs> <laughs> Felicia's right. It's an emotional attachment, and and we California provides such a wide variety of fresh produce, nuts, grapes, wine, to the entire U.S. and really to a lot of the world. We have such a unique climate here in California that we can grow almost anything, and we do a really good job at it. Our climate is perfect for that. So the rest of the U.S. relies on California produce. I always make it a, a habit when I travel. I love to go to the grocery store, see what's in there, and see where it's from, 
And I've traveled throughout the East Coast, throughout the uh, U.S., even Canada, the world. And you always see the U.S., you see California uh, stamped on the outside of the box. So it's always amazing to me how far uh, our produce goes. I mean, we, we grow... We grow a lot of different crops. We, we're growing crops like uh, the chilies that are going to go into sriracha sauce, um, peppers that go into Stouffer's frozen entrees. We grow for Amy's Organic that goes around the world. I mean, we, we know where a lot of our food does go. The tomatoes uh, goes to organic pizzas, conventional pizzas, spaghetti sauce. So, uh, so what happens in California affects the rest of the U.S. and part of the world. People think that organic is basically, uh, you know, it's the single, uh, it's a, the best thing that people can buy, that you pay more for it. But does organic and water, is that part of this designation or not? People don't like to talk about that side of the organic. Uh, we know that in California, where we have to irrigate the crops, typically, and not always, but typically our yields are lower for the organic crops, which means you're either taking up more land to produce the same uh, pound or or ten, whatever you're growing, of the produce. Um, so, yeah, you're using essentially more water to produce uh, that organic crop. We tend, to, we tend to grow for markets. And if the market is favorable, uh, we're going to grow, uh, if it's organic, conventional, different crops. We, we've grown, like I say, we grow over 25 different crops on the ranch. We have a, quite a diversity there. But, uh, but we, we will grow what people want to buy, and we'll grow it the way they want us to grow it. So if I heard you correctly, to feed the world on organic food will require more land? More land, and in an area where you're irrigating, more water. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. You can listen to all of our programs and subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. And feel free to leave a comment for us. Today, we're talking about drought, flood, and how to balance our water supply in extreme times. Our guests are Felicia Marcus, chair of the California Water Resources Board, California produce grower Don Cameron, and Buzz Thompson, former director of the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford. Now, back to our program. Here's Greg Dalton. Buzz Thompson, we haven't talked about desalination. That often comes up in, in dry times. San Diego plunked out about a billion dollars uh, to do desalination. Are we going to see more desal in the future to try to even out these extremes of too much water and too little? Desalination right now is still extremely expensive. And so if you have any other available water supplies, for example, recycling water, desal normally does not make very much sense. But there are some communities that, because of where they are, are inherently short on water. And if you run out of cheap water, desal is something that you know if you're by an ocean, you're always going to have enough water to uh, use in your city. So Monterey is going to go to desal, and it makes sense for Monterey to go to desal. There are other communities like San Diego where they're at the end of a line uh, for the delivery of water. And they have very little groundwater in San Diego, very little local water supply. 
So San Diego has built a desal facility, not because it is necessarily the cheapest way for them to get water at this particular point in time, but they want to make sure that if at some point they can't get water to San Diego from all of their various other sources, that they have an adequate local source of water. So San Diego has done it not because they don't have any other options, but because of the security that they get from having a local uh, desal facility. So desal right now makes sense in some areas, but not in most areas. Over time, however, as we run out again of cheap water, people are going to turn more and more to desal. In addition to that, we're looking at new technologies that could significantly reduce the cost of desal. Desal is very expensive today because of all of the energy it uses. And of course, all of the energy it uses also contributes back to climate change. So it's not the best solution to the problem of climate change-driven drought. We are right now, however, using far more energy in our desal than what the physicists would call the theoretical minimum amount of energy that's necessary for desalination. That tells us that technologically, there's still room for significant improvement. And so scientists throughout not only the United States but the world are looking at new membranes and new technologies to bring down the cost, and I'm sure it will come down. I just don't think it's going to come down probably by the time of our next drought, which is likely to be within the next five years. Uh, and also, speaking of water security, the Great Lakes, largest body of fresh water, uh, they have been uh, provided water security to the American Midwest, but they've been having algae blooms lately that's causing great concern. Is that connected to climate, Buzz Thompson? And what does that portend for warming water, warming, warming, uh, warming temperatures? Yeah. So two things there. The first is, is that, yes, those algal blooms are related to changing climate. And one of the things that we know is, is that as the temperature rises, we're going to end up with worse droughts because evapotranspiration rates are going to go up. As Felicia mentioned earlier, we'll also have smaller snowpacks. Those snowpacks will melt earlier in the year, which in a flood year like this makes things more difficult because it means it's raining and the snow is melting at the same time, which simply increases the difficulty of capturing that water. And in addition to that, with that warming water, you can get algal blooms and you also have greater stress on our fish species, which are already in real trouble because there's less water in the rivers and there are dams on those rivers. Uh, so climate change has a whole series of problems that we need to worry about. Now, having said that, the other thing is, is that the Great Lakes will not let any of the water out of the Great Lakes area for use elsewhere in the country. The one thing that they got mm -hmm. uh, passed through all of the Great Lakes states and approved by Congress is a compact that says the water has to be used within their watershed. So even though in California we, we might want to use water from the Great Lakes, it's illegal. We're talking about water at Climate One with our guest Don Cameron, a farmer from California's Central Valley, Felicia Marcus, a water official in California, and Buzz Thompson, professor at Stanford Law School. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. I'm Phyllis Teets. The, um, the issue of climate change is an expensive one. You're talking about the increase in food. You're talking about the increase in, in maintaining infrastructure. And I think that's only just beginning to, to be seen how much that's going to cost. Is there a state or local or federal agency that's going to help deal with these rising costs and the impact on the people? Food impacts. Buzz Thompson, who's looking at this whole picture of food and water price pressure? 
Yeah. So as you pointed out, climate change is going to impose huge costs on our economy. And given that the federal government is at the moment not in the business of providing money for climate change mitigation or adaptation, and that our state government is under greater water, I'm sorry, greater financial pressure than before, a lot of the cost of that is going to end up on the local communities. Bottom line from my standpoint is it's a good reason why we should be mitigating climate change and not simply assuming that we can adapt to it. So food and water is going to cost more. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, uh, thank you. I'm Spreck Rosecrans. Greg, I think you threw out the figure of $50 billion to fix our water-related infrastructure, whether that's upgrading or maintaining or new, new dams, new levees, new groundwater recharge, whatever all those things are. Um, my question is, how do we figure out how to spend that money efficiently? Uh, dams are highly political. Some people love them. Some people hate them. Uh, some people say they're cost-effective. Others don't. And we don't have enough money to do everything, and maybe we don't want to. But how do we get around the politics and get into a world where we do the economically efficient things statewide to provide for all our needs? I'll even say that nationally. We have some bipartisan support for infrastructure push, Republicans and Democrats. Water infrastructure, Buzz Thompson, could be part of that. It definitely could be part of it. It should be part of it because we need to invest not only in our dams, but we also need to be investing in, for example, our flood control levees. There are agencies in, I think, every single state that look at dam safety. And those are supposed to be expert agencies. They tend not to be overly political. And I would look to them to help prioritize where we should be spending our money uh, for dam improvement. I think there's another issue that uh, is likely to be relevant here, which is that for many of our dams, they do have uh, many more years of life uh, ahead of them, uh, and we should be investing in repairing them. There are probably some dams out there that maybe should be taken down at this particular stage rather than investing a lot more money in them. Like the effort to take down the Klamath dams. That's right. right. Don Cameron, there, there is a bias potentially in building dams. Unions like the job. They're visible, big construction projects. What you did, flood your field, put water back in the ground. Do you think that the, that doesn't get enough attention because it's not uh, as sexy and perhaps the unions don't like it as much? No, I, th I think that it, it really, uh, we brought it to the forefront in 2011, and, and we're doing it again this year. Um, you know, we have issues. Part of our problem is uh, groundwater recharge, water for groundwater recharge is not a beneficial use um, at the federal level, level and at the state level. And we'd like to see the law changed. Um, putting, putting flood water on ground for recharge should be a beneficial use. Beneficial use, and that's a particular uh, use of uh, legal term there for use of Sorry. water. Let's go to our next question. My name's Carter Brooks. I'm an artist and philosopher of climate art. Uh, my, I want to go to the whiplash side, the flood side of things. Some people comment every once in a while that Sacramento will be the next New Orleans, <laughs> and sort of the idea being that as... As the, as the precipitation falls more as rain than snow or as it melts faster, we'll, we could have you know, all the Sierras just dump into the valley. Um, I wonder whether anyone can comment on whether that's a fantasy or whether that's a real, a real worry. Felicia Marcus? Well, I would just say that thank you for that, that point. I think in this year's rains, 
if it had not been for that YOLO bypass that I mentioned, that the both helping fish and doing flood control, millions and millions of dollars, and the efforts that have gone into place to do that, do weirs and the overflow weir, you would have seen flooding in Sacramento this year. I think as we do more and more of those really large setbacks that we manage for multiple benefits where people can farm when it's not in flood stage, there'll be flood easements and the like. I think that is the next phase of uh, flood control for the Sac Valley and other places. The way we make it in a more constrained world without breaking the bank is to get multiple benefits out of each drop of water and every public dollar that we spend. But doing that requires not just building another big thing. It requires people coming together, working across traditional geographies, disciplines, and cultural divides. And that's why I was talking about optimism at these experiments happening where folks figure out how to talk to each other and do something where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts because they did something unusual. And the, the Yolo bypass story is a really good one to tell for Sacramento, and they're going to need more of it. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. We're talking about water whiplash. Don Cameron, Bill Kelly with SL Environmental Law. I applaud you in flooding the fields to, to recharge your groundwater. Um, are you concerned about some of the contaminants that have been existing in the groundwater eventually getting into the aquifers? Right. Our, our area is, uh, you know, it's been in farmland for quite a long time. So we do have uh, chemicals that we do use in farming, but they're usually very short-lived. Nitrates are an issue. We feel that with the amount of water that we're putting on, that we're actually going to have a dilution effect long-term. Our water quality is going to actually improve, mm-hmm. and it, it all depends on the area you're, where you're doing the recharge. But... Um, this has been farmland. Uh, you're right. We, we're very concerned about uh, nitrates, salts, anything that we could uh, move down. But we manage it accordingly. We change our management practices when we, when we are going to be doing recharge. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thanks. Uh, my name is Todd Mitchell. The panel mentioned the challenges to maintaining public awareness of the importance of effective water resources management in times other than the cyclical extremes of drought and flood. And I was just wondering if there's any aspect of the public educational curriculum that sort of instills that awareness in the decision makers of tomorrow. Buzz Thompson, you're an educator. Question about educating future generations about the sort of the, the water extremes in the future, different from the kind of the predictable, well, more predictable past we've been in. Yeah, no, absolutely. One of the things that could make a huge difference is education about water issues, particularly at the elementary school and junior and senior high school uh, level. I mean, my kids were recycling far sooner than I was. And in many ways, I think our kids are the people who come home and teach their parents the important lessons. And so if we can do that in the water sector, we know we'll be in better shape. Teach your children well, and there's yeah, a, right. you listen to that. Yeah, teach your parents well, too. We've been talking about water whiplash and the new normal of more droughts and floods in the United States, or more extreme droughts and floods. Our guests were Don Cameron, a farmer from California's Central Valley, Felicia Marcus, a top water official in California, and Buzz Thompson, a professor of natural resources at Stanford Law School. This program was underwritten by the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. Podcasts of this and other Climate One shows are available wherever you podcast. When you download one, please leave a comment or give us a rating. We want to know what you think of our conversations on food, energy, water, technology, and more. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We'll see you next time.
Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our booker and associate producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich are the editors. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. You can discover additional podcasts, videos, speaker information, and more at climateone.org. Join us next time for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.